1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 16. Let us hear God's word. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the spoils and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the two hundred men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Basor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and the worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies, they shall share alike. So it was, from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah to his friends, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. <clears throat> to those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aruer, those who are in Shifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoah, <clears throat> those who are in Rakal, those who are in the cities of the Jeromelites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Horma, those who are in Korshon, those who are in Athok, those who are in Hebron, <clears throat> and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. The grass withers, <clears throat> the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, we come here um, to really the final events uh, in the book. Uh, we, of course, started that last time here in chapter 30, and we'll continue into chapter 31, and, and they really take place at the same time. Um, uh, if you haven't picked one up yet, there are some handouts on the back <clears throat> that give a chronology of these final days here in First Samuel, and uh, I think you'll find it very helpful uh, to, to look at that. Uh, but basically, David is far to the south when Saul dies. But again, these things are happening more or less at the same time. Within days, David is going to be established as king in Judah. Now, this final section here more broadly, chapters 27 to 31, not only does it say that David is much better than Saul, and so we should accept David as our king, but it also is clearly saying to us that David is far from perfect. And so we really should ask God to be our king, not ask for a human king. Because all human kings, all magistrates of every kind, are sinners and will fail us in one way or another. 
Some maybe a little, some maybe quite a bit. Remember that when you go vote here in a couple weeks. All right, now due to David's fear, we have seen um, in chapter 27, now he's almost had to fight against fellow Israelites. And here in this chapter, we've seen he's almost lost his family and the families of the 600 men who were with him. While they were north in Aphek, the Amalekites raided southern Judah and Philistia, burning Ziklag and taking everyone captive. Again, as I said last time, there's no indication uh, that, that the Amalekites burned any other places. There's no indication that they even took people. Well, maybe they did, and we're not told about it. Uh, but even if they did, obviously the author is highlighting how it was Ziklag that was targeted in this way. Because again, this is God's punishment against David for his sin. And so David here, after being in the north, returns probably somewhere three to five days after his home was raided and destroyed. And so uh, God here is bringing David's sin on his head, more or less, for his lies, for his fear. Yet, we also see God's grace, his goodness in answering David when David finally turned back to the Lord and by leading him to this slave who could help him, even though the slave was basically a, a dot in the wilderness. All right, so <clears throat> this is where we ended last time. And we pick up now in, in uh, verse 16, which says, And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Now, since we're picking up halfway all the pronouns, you've got to remember the antecedents here. Okay, so when he had brought him down, that is when the Egyptian slave brought David and his men down, there they were, the Amalekites. All right, so David leave, uh, excuse me, the Egyptian slave leaves David and his 400 men to this camp. Now, possibly they returned to the camp where they had started with before they started raiding uh, southern Judah and Philistia, or maybe they had a prearranged meeting afterward, a specific place. Uh, whichever the case, he knew where to go, and he leads them to the Amalekites. And the Amalekites obviously are not prepared at all. They are boastful, they're confident, they're jubilant, maybe they're drunk, at least some of them. And most likely they were thinking, well, you know, the Philistines are up north fighting the Israelites, and so basically there's going to be nobody around, no, but, no one to fight against us. And they, they were right in many ways. There's nothing for them to fear, even now. They're still way up north fighting. We can take our time going back and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, David and his men were sent back to Ziklag, and here now they are. Notice it says here they not only took spoils from uh, Judah, but also from Philistia. Again, here's a hint that they did not only attack Ziklag and Philistia, but some of the other places. But Ziklag is highlighted, of course. So then in verse 17, it says, Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day, on a man that escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Again, these verses are pretty straightforward in terms of what they're saying. Here now, not just David, but David and his 400 men uh, come and attack them. Now remember, uh, 
David and his men had traveled a good long time this day. They were not yet to Ziklag, maybe whatever, seven or eight miles away, ten miles away, whatever it was. They come, probably, as they're getting close, they're seeing the smoke, they're picking up speed, maybe even running to Ziklag. And then when they uh, uh, get word from the Lord, they take off, they go to the Brook Basor, again, remember, 12 to 15 miles away, depending on where exactly it was. They find this Egyptian, and now they're taking off after the Amalekites and fighting them. It is probably very safe to say that they traveled somewhere 25 to 30 miles that day. Walking, running, going quickly, resting at times, and they're fighting Amalekites. I mean, don't think of a British army all lined up in a row and everybody just stands there and shoots at one another. I mean, these are raiders. These are nomads. They'd likely scattered everywhere. And so, you know, try imagine uh, tracking down a bunch of chickens or cats or something like that. I mean, it, they're, they're running all over the place. Now, on the one hand, this shows how, what great shape David and his men were. Hey, remember we talked about David ran from his house to Goliath, you know, in just a couple hours, you know, 15 miles or whatever it was. Um, they were in great shape. But more importantly, do you see how God is with him? That even after all this time, after all this energy expended, God is with David. And they track down the Amalekites and then defeat them. Okay. Now, 400 escaped on camels. Okay. But David presumably killed the rest, is the assumption here. And there's actually no other mention of the Amalekites in the Old Testament after this. There are passages that refer back to the Amalekites, but no clear evidence the Amalekites existed after this. Now, 400 did, but they didn't come back. And so David, finally then, is fulfilling God's word in Exodus 17 and related passages. When the Amalekites attacked Israel as they came out of Egypt, God said, hey, he's going to wipe them out. Saul was supposed to do that, didn't do that. David has been working at it, and now, more or less, it's done. And so this uh, promise of God is being fulfilled here now in this way. Add to that, then, the immediate issue of the Amalekites kidnapping David's uh, family and all the families of his friends, uh, of his men. Also, of course, we have the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman scenario here. And, as we saw in chapter 27, this is David continuing the work of Joshua, too, and finishing the conquest. So, all these things are going into it. And so, I, I, I've said this in chapter 27, <clears throat> I said it last week, I don't think David was wrong here to attack the Amalekites at all. Now, that doesn't mean we go do it. Uh, though we do <clears throat> fight against all evil with our spiritual weapons. But in terms of physically attacking somebody, that's not for us to do today. Not in this way. All right, now, verse 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And pretty straightforward, everything is recovered, everything is rescued, uh, in fact, you could translate that word, he snatched them away from their captivity, 
from the slavery they uh, would have been uh, subjected to and so forth. And then in verse 19, And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Now, I said this a couple times last week, but here's another one of those times where you really don't need this verse. We already had this told to us in the previous couple verses. But it's given to us again, obviously to emphasize the point, maybe add a few clarifying details, but the point is the same as what we've already seen. So what's the point? Well, the word all is used nine times in this chapter and four times here in verses 18 to 20. And so all of it is recovered. Verse 6, all was taken. Now here all of it is recovered. God kept his promises here in this way from uh, verses 7 and following. And so David's wives, the families of his men, all of them, plus the spoils, everything is taken back. So again, this suggests to us that the actions that David took in chapter 27 against the Amalekites were okay. If God was displeased with David's actions, if David was doing wrongly in chapter 27, why would he get everything back? Maybe most things, but you would think that some would have been lost, but nothing was. So it suggests that David was doing righteously in chapter 27. But the bigger point is, do you see God's grace here? Do you see God's grace to David. David did not deserve this. For 16 months, he had been living in fear. He had been living with half-truths. David didn't deserve this blessing. He maybe, you could say, uh, deserved some kind of rescue, but not necessarily everything. His fear and his lies warranted a worse end than this. Maybe not a ultimate worse end, but at least worse than this. Do you see God's grace in spite of David's sin? God so often treats us far better than we deserve. Certainly that's true in our justification. But even as Joe pointed out in our, our hymn this morning, or this evening, this first one, that uh, this is really about how we live as Christians. It's the focus here in this passage. And God so often treats us far better than we deserve in our sanctification. And so do you see the same uh, point here is for us. We so often, you know, pick us in. Um, we so often fall prey to these things. Maybe it's slander or gossip or criticism. And yet, God gives us a raise at work or something like that. Or we lust or we covet or we're apathetic in our relationship with him and we, we grumble and complain because the service is too long or uh, you know, whatever it is. And yet God is gracious to us anyway in spite of our sin. And he sends us friends who help us. He meets our needs, whatever it is. Whatever the sin, whatever the grace. Do you see the same kind of pattern in your life? that God is doing here with David. Because he does. It is the same. Well, in verse 20, it says, Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. 
Now, <clears throat> the Hebrew here of this verse actually is a little bit challenging, and what the New King James has here is, is probably the idea, but there is some uncertainty. But the overall point is, is clear. They took everything, and they brought it back. They claimed it for David. Now, this would have been a big deal. We don't know how much it was, but even for 400 men, this must have been a rather significant task for them to accomplish this, to drive all this stuff back um, before them in this way. But you see now that it's David's. It belongs to him. He's claimed it. Now, the rest of the chapter gives us two ways that David uses the spoil, two ways he distributes it. He recovered his own, but he didn't keep it all for himself. There is a kind of restitution, you might say. So the first way we see this is in verses 21 to 25, and the second one is verses 26 to 31. So the first of these then, verse 21. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Basor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. All right. And the point's pretty straightforward here, but do you see the the overall ideas? David and his 400 men return to Basor, and they join up with the 200. Okay, but do you see David's attitude? Now, the new King James says David greeted him. Okay, fine. Uh, it, it actually says he asked them how they were doing. He is wondering if there is peace toward them. It's, it's the Hebrew word shalom here. He's asking about their welfare. How are you doing? Now remember, they, they were half dead. They couldn't keep going. And David is asking them how they are doing. Even though he had pressed on, Even though he did all this work of warfare and rescue, including rounding up and carrying back all the spoils, the first thing out of his mouth is, how are you doing? Rather striking, isn't it? For all of David's faults, and we've seen them here, haven't we? And there's many more. For all of his faults, he was a kind man. He cared for his men. It wasn't about power and wealth for David. Now, there are other times where, yeah, okay, you could say that was the case. Think of what happens with Uriah. Think of what happens with the census. Um, yeah, he, that, that didn't go so well. He was cruel and selfish in those things. Think of the daily weaknesses he showed for his children and so on. But he wasn't perfect, and yet you see his kindness. Here you see that specifically for these 200 men. Okay. This is very different from Saul, very different from most magistrates. Most magistrates, as you can see evidently in our culture, they don't care about the people. They just want to get voted in so they can have more money and power and so on and so forth. David's not like that, just imperfectly so. So verse 22 then, Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Well, David is kind, but not everyone in David's group here was. Not everyone 
was as kind as David. In fact, um, they are quite mean here. Uh, David's men were not godly, at least the ones who spoke. May have, was, may have been all 400, probably was just a smaller group of that, but some of them are evil. Some of them, literally, it says, are men of Belial. Remember the sons of Eli were called that. And so <clears throat> some of these men joined with David, not because they were really convinced David was supposed to be the next king, but they were just mad at Saul for some reason or another. But nevertheless, they're with David, and they're blessed in that way uh, to some degree. But notice here how they respond. Okay? Pretty straightforward. They don't want to share the spoil with the 200 who stayed behind. They did not go and fight and help, so why should they get anything? Now, we'll give them their wives and children back, but that's it. No more. And the way the verse ends, it sounds like they want those 200 to leave them, to depart, it says. So it sounds like they don't even want the 200 to, to join up with them in any way. And in one sense, this is reasonable, right? No work, no food, no fight, no spoil. It's a biblical principle, right? But do you see what's coming out? I mean, the author obviously tells us that they are evil. This is an evil idea. But do you see how they're a bunch of legalists? They're a bunch of holier-than-thou kind of people here. Right? We were faithful. We did the fighting. Look how great we are, and you guys, you know, forget about you guys. Do you see how these men are really holding to the idea of work salvation? If you do this, that, or the other, then you're going to be blessed. And if you don't do this, that, and the other, then, you know, you're going to be blessed, or, you know, depending on how you fill in the blank, right? But, but the idea is, I am good, and these people are not. That's what legalism is all about. These are the people who only think about duty, doing the right thing, following the rules. These are not the people that focus on love and grace. This is the parent that always emphasizes tough love, but never really has a relationship with their child. This is the boss who just focuses on the job and is not all that concerned about the employees. This is the Christian who says we need to keep the rules. We need to do these things and not do those things. And there's not much love that goes along with that. These are those who are judgmental, who criticize. Okay. Unfortunately, we've had to deal with some of that in our broader church here recently. Okay. This kind of attitude. It's harmful. It's hurtful. It drives people away. And it sets up idols. And it can tear people to pieces. And that's what these men want to do. So how's David going to respond? Verse 23. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. Now, that is such a profound answer. Do you, do you hear what David is saying? On the one hand, you could say David is still fighting here, isn't he? He, he has to deal with his own men now, and 
and their sin, not just the Amalekites. And he's fighting against them, but he's fighting in the way, in this way, by saying, um, we're going to act like God acts. And how did God act toward us? Gracious. Okay. God is the one who gave us success. God is the one who helped find this needle in the haystack, this Egyptian slave. God is the one who gave us the stamina to fight against the Amalekites for such a long day okay, and into the next day, right? God is the one who has done these things. So how can I then act differently? When we remember that all the blessings that we receive are due to God's grace, then we'll be gracious people too. Now, we have seen a number of times in the Psalms, especially, and we're going to see it in Psalm 112 here pretty soon and so forth. You know, there are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. That's the primary idea, right? But we have to remember that we're not very obedient, and yet God blesses us anyway. We have so many more blessings than we are worthy to receive. In one sense, we don't deserve any blessings. And this is David's mentality. David is saying, God is so gracious to us. Now, maybe at this point, he hasn't put it all together yet about his lies and, and his fear and such. At some point, he does. I mean, obviously, we have it written down for us. But it, at the moment, maybe he hasn't put all that together. And yet, David still recognizes, look, God has been gracious to us by giving us the victory. How can we do differently to these 200 men? Saul, again, was very different. Remember chapter 14? Hey, Saul pronounces his decree, nobody can eat until all the Philistines are defeated, and Jonathan comes, doesn't know, eats the honey, and Saul's ready to kill his own son. Saul, he doesn't understand the idea of grace. Never has. But David does. You know, it's the legalists who are mean. It's those who believe in work salvation that are the problem. Now, many of them will say, oh, I don't believe in work salvation, but that's how they live. Those who think they are godlier than others, and, you know, look how great I am kind of stuff, right? They're not going to extend grace to other people. You know people like that. You live with them. Because we all do that in one degree or another. But some of us, that's the way of life. It's all about, I'm better than you. Rather than, man, God has been so gracious to me, so I'm going to be gracious to those around me. This is David's mentality. Grace must result in more grace. And so as God has preserved David, and as God has preserved his men and his families, as God has graciously led them to this Egyptian flame and to the Amalekites and so on and so forth, okay, as God gave them all this spoil, David is saying, how in the world can we refuse giving these good things to the 200 men who stayed behind? Do you see how David is really echoing, can you say, ahead of time? <laughs> the words of Jesus. You remember the parable in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. Here this man was in debt millions of dollars. And he pleaded for forgiveness. 
of this debt. And the guy said, yeah, I'll, I'll forgive your debt. And then he turns right around and he goes out and he throws a man in jail for owing him a few hundred dollars. Okay. This is the same point. David is saying, I've been forgiven much. So I, I'm, I'm going to forgive them for their weakness, for their inability to help. We're going to be gracious. Just like Jesus is saying here in the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is the way of the Christian, at least it should be. Unfortunately, how many times do you hear people say, oh, I don't like Christians, they're just a bunch of these holier-than-thou kind of people. I don't like being around them and so on and so forth. And many times they're right, because that's how Christians behave. We're better than you are. Rather than saying, wow, I've been blessed because of God's grace. I'm not better than anyone. And sometimes... In David's lucid moments, like this, he understood that very well. And we need to as well. So let me read here a bit from Dr. Davis on this point. He says it this way. It is urgent for Christians to see that for David here, grace is not merely some theological concept, but it's a worldview. It is not something that applies only to how one enters the kingdom of God, but to every moment of that royal life. What Yahweh has given us dominates David's thinking and controls his decisions and actions. So grace must always be the decisive and dominating factor in the Christian's practical theology. He or she must constantly confess that this success, this employment, this loved one, this health, this meal, right, fill in the blank, is what Yahweh has given us. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Every Christian then has no choice. You must be a good theologian who both speaks and lives a theology of grace. You will find it humbling, but it is the only thing it will keep you from worshiping yourself. If you're not a gracious person, you have to wonder if you're saved at all. This is so fundamental. Now, let me just say this caveat. This does not mean we don't hold people's feet to the fire. This doesn't mean we throw out all the rules and, and so on. That, that's not what we're talking about. But as we keep God's law, as we try to hold people accountable in their sin, there still must be grace in it all. Remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Okay? When you go to try to confront someone in their sin, just be careful because... You know, you're a sinner too. And so here's David's response. And this is the heart of the matter. But he also says this in verse 24. Okay, um, verse 24, for who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. Okay. They shall share alike. Now, I think the assumption is this. Who will heed you? 
I am not going to heed you. David is basically rejecting them and their request in this response. And anyone who lives by grace is not going to respond to this. Those who are legalists will say, yeah, they've got a point. But those who actually are living by grace are going to ignore people who ask for these kind of things. And so the point then here, the immediate point is, whether you fight or whether you stay with the supplies, all are to receive the blessings. So doesn't this then sound like Jesus? You remember in Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you remember that the man went out and hired people to work for the day, and he said, I'll pay you such and such for the day. And so there's people come and they work and so forth. But then the man goes out at different times during the day, like at lunch and later in the afternoon, and says, come work for me, I'll give you work and so forth, and I'll pay you what's reasonable. And at the end of the day, he paid everybody the same thing. The people who worked all day, they're like, well, wait a second here. We deserve more. How come they get as much as we get? That's not fair. And the point of the parable is, you don't deserve anything. You are called to serve God and work for God all day, every day, and you receive whatever he wants to give you. This element of grace is inherent in this parable. Those who get upset by it are the legalists who believe in works salvation and do not remember that it's all of grace all the way through. Now, one other point here in this way, we must be uh, careful. We cannot take these passages to justify socialism. This is not equal outcome for all. It's not that the 200 were lazy. They, they were unable to work. And David is not taking somebody's money to give to another. David is recovering what was stolen and then pays accordingly, gives them back what was theirs, basically. And so this is not justification for socialism. So you can't use this passage in that way, though some, of course, try to do so. All right, well, lastly then here in this part, verse 25 so it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. And so the principle not only was in this situation, but it continued, obviously, uh, throughout uh, David's whole um, uh, ministry as king and so on. So um, maybe we should think of it this way, not as socialism, but as, say, a baseball team or a football team. You have 25 players or whatever it is, or 53 players or whatever for football and so forth. And everyone who is on the team that wins the World Series gets a ring or a Super Bowl ring or whatever it is. They get the same amount of money. Whether you're someone who played every out or every down or just played a few, you all get the same thing because you're all part of the team. You're all playing a part. And that's David's mentality here with these men. Not only is it an issue of grace, but each one plays a part in what they're doing. So that's part of what's happening here, too. So, so if you go back to the beginning of this section in verse 21, you see David starts with some psychology, 
how are you doing? You see his love, you see his goodness. Then, of course, we see his theology, and that's what I've been emphasizing here, his graciousness. And now here he ends with his authority by making this a statute. This, many have said, is David's first law as king. Saul may very well be dead at this point. But either way, you see how David is living by grace. All right, now, <clears throat> David not only distributes the spoil in this way, but now this last section, we see him distribute it even farther. Verse 26, so when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. All right, well, David returned home to Ziklag, um, it is quite possible he has not yet heard that Saul had died. I think we should see this as chronological, and it's not until chapter 1 of, an, of 2 Samuel where he hears. Um, so he's not returning to Judah yet, uh, but very soon he will. And uh, he will um, uh, become king in Hebron in literally a matter of days. Um, but here it says, he sent the spoil to Judah. Remember in verse 14, the Egyptian slave said that they had attacked southern Judah. At the time David got to Ziklag and found his family gone and so forth, he probably didn't know that. Maybe he assumed it, but he didn't know. But uh, the slave said so. And so David now is saying, okay, I'm not going to keep everything for myself. I'm going to return it to these people in Judah. It's theirs anyway, right? Now it says here about a present and so forth. Okay. Uh, it, it, it didn't belong to David. He recovered it. But David really is returning it to the people who owned it from the first, in, in the first place. Um, now, maybe, we don't know this, but maybe they sorted through the stuff and said, hey, yeah, that's my hat. That's my sweatshirt. You know, they take it back or whatever. Um, but at least they're given an equivalent amount and a fair amount in return. Now, Verses 27 to 31 now give us a list of the different places where he went and returned things. So verse 27, to those who are in Bethel, now this is the one in the south, not the one up near Ai, but the one in the south. Those who are in Ramoth of the south, again, not Ramoth Gilead, Gilead for example, but the one in the south. Uh, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aroer, those who are in Shifmoth, there are those in Eshtemoa. Those who recall, those who are in the cities of the Jeromeelites, so more than just one there. Those who are in the cities of the Kenites, that too. Those who are in Horma, those who are in the Korashan, those who are in Athok, and those who are in Hebron. Okay. There are 14 places mentioned here, but right, some it said cities plural, so it was more than that. And then it ends, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. So here's uh, where you can look at your map here a moment. And uh, at least on this map, you see Hebron is pretty much right in the middle of this particular map. And you see Ziklag. So basically everything south, from Hebron south into the Negev, this is uh, where these places were. Some of them, we do know where they were. At least we have a pretty good idea. Some of them, we have no idea where these places were. But certainly they were all in this general vicinity. Maybe David sent some things back to Philistine cities. That's just not told to us here. He certainly sent it back to the cities of Judah. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, what's interesting here 
is that three of these cities were Levitical cities. And so this has led some people to say that David saw the spoil as a gift and, can you say, God's income, so to speak. And so he is giving a tithe to these three Levitical cities from the spoil. And, uh, and so maybe that was part of his thinking as well. But do you see what's going on here? David is giving things back, not only to those places that had been ransacked and so forth, but also this is where David had been running from Saul. He had been frequenting these places. These areas David had protected, these areas David had protected from the Amalekites even, as well as others, even before he was living in Ziklag and now here when he did. The point is simply this. David did not keep the spoil. He was kind. He returned it to those who owned it originally. Again, David is living by grace. He is not claiming it for himself, even though he had a right to do that. But he is giving it back to the people who owned it originally. Uh, It's probably also the case, especially because of how verse 31 ends. That David is thinking, I am going to more or less pay these people back who had helped me along the way. Remember, Nabal did not want to do that, but other people did. And so David now is sending this spoil to basically say, hey, thanks for taking care of us all those times. But I think we also need to see that David is being a good politician. <laughs> He's politicking here. <laughs> in a matter of days, he will be crowned king in Hebron. In this act, surely endured the people in southern Judah to David. If David would have claimed all these things and not send anything back, you wonder if the people in southern Judah would have said, yeah, we want you as king. And so there is some politicking here in addition to David's grace and kindness and paying back and all that sort of thing. Okay. Unfortunately, we have most of our politicians who just take from some to give to another with all their pork projects and so on and They're not really being generous at all. Um, So, do you see how David is responding? In this, can you say, everyday event, he is responding and acting like God acted toward him. And we need to do the same. Now, let me end here then with this. Basically, where I end with where I began here tonight in my introduction. Uh, and let me do it here by showing you just uh, a few statistics. Here in chapter 30, David is mentioned 28 times. Basically, uh, once a verse, not quite. But in the next chapter, he's not mentioned at all. David is not anywhere close to Saul when he died. Saul's not mentioned here because Saul did not live by grace. David did. In the next chapter, Saul's mentioned 11 times. And so we again are seeing this apology for David. We want David as our king, not Saul as our king. Um, But remember, all this that's happening in chapter 30 and his family being stolen is because of David's sin. And so David is responsible for these problems because of his fear. And yet, David does seek the Lord, 
And David does act like God by extending grace. And so we want David, not Saul. We want those kinds of leaders, not the ones who are like Saul. And yet, even the best of them, even the Davids of the world, are imperfect. And we want God as our king. We need to go back to chapter 8 here again as well. So, again, remember some of the bigger points, not just the immediate point of uh, these passages. So, uh, next week, of course, we'll have the Reformation service at Hillcrest. And following that, uh, we will uh, bring to conclusion our study of 1 Samuel. So, let's pray together. Our Father and God, we are so thankful for this book you have given to us here, what we call 1 Samuel. We thank you, Lord, for the many lessons in it. And we thank you especially here for um, this lesson tonight and, and this reminder of your grace, the example of your grace to David and uh, um, treating him far better than he deserved. We are thankful, Lord, that you do that with us too, not just in our initial justification, but, but our daily sanctifications. We are thankful, Lord, that you are gracious to us in these ways. So, Lord, we then ask that you would help us not to think that somehow we deserve your grace and that that we're somehow better than somebody else, but that, like David, we would live a life of grace because of your grace to us. We are thankful, Lord, for, for this passage to challenge us in our own idolatry, in our own um, holier-than-thouness, in our own um, pride and ego. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us to soften our hearts, to, to, to help us to remember that it is all of your grace and that we should then live a life of graciousness toward others. Not that we ignore your law or anything, but that we would do it surrounded and filled with grace. And so, Lord, we pray for your, your blessings in this way, your mercies in this way, your enabling uh, here in this that we might serve you in all things. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.